Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I'm fine. I'm extremely thankful for the undo function in the recording software that I use because, well, (laughs) I did an interview earlier on with my first guest as part of the podcast, obviously, and then promptly recorded all over it um, with the first attempt at this intro. So I did the intro, did a couple of little bits of edits on the intro that happened, and then said, right, I'll, I'll copy and paste in the interview, opened up the file, and then realized that the file I just opened was the interview I'd just been editing. And I was like, oh, fuck. Fuckity fucking fuck. Fuck. You know that scene in The Wire where Bunk and McNulty are going around the house and they're just like, fuck, fuck, fucking fuck. That was me. Um, just saying fuck a lot because I had like saved over it. And then I was like, maybe, maybe there's enough in the undo function to get me back to where I should be. So I was rapidly pressing, uh, command Z, command Z, command Z, command Z all the time until eventually I got it all back. So I'm quite happy. I'm gleeful, in fact, that I didn't have a great big part of the show, A, missing, or B, that I would have had to redo. And there is really nothing worse. Well, there's loads of things worse. I'm speaking from a podcasting perspective. There's not much worse than trying to redo an interview you already did, which you're very happy with. Uh, and covered all the bits and pieces that you wanted to cover in it because you go back and you think like, well, did I ask that question? Or will I ask that question in a different way? What about that? Or that answer is different. It's bad. It would have been bad, but fear not. Fear not. I have it all under control again. And I'm having one of those kind of days in general, to be honest. The second interview I did with my second guest, I I forgot to press record uh, for the first 60 seconds and then realized pretty quickly, thankfully, I've been lucky today because I could have gone through that whole interview without having pressed record. And earlier in the day, I spent, I'd say, half an hour looking for my online banking thingy. Do you have one of these where you have to do like a one-time code? And it's a little kind of plastic doohickey that you open up and you put your pin number in and everything like that. But I could not find it anywhere. And it could only be one place, and that was on my desk. And I looked everywhere. I looked under the desk, around the desk, behind the desk, and all of that. Could not find it anywhere until I lifted a piece of paper, and there it was, under the piece of paper. I'm just having one of those scatterbrained kind of days. But... 
Thankfully, it appears to have all worked out in the end, and the podcast that I had envisaged bringing you is more or less the podcast that you are listening to right now. So uh, there you go. And here we go. As I said, we have two guests. A bit later on, Tim Payton from the Arsenal Supporters Trust is here to talk about the fan-led review into English football, Tracy Couch, independent regulators, what that might mean for Arsenal and beyond, and all the rest of it. But first, a different Tim altogether to talk about things at executive level at Arsenal and how they might correlate with success on the pitch and beyond. We look ahead to the Newcastle game as well. The man who I recorded over, but thankfully recovered from the digital wilderness, it's Tim Stillman. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Let's start by talking about uh, what I thought was a really interesting interview on the official website. I think it initially appeared in the Arsenal programme with Richard Garlick, who is the club's director of football operations. I think that is the title that he has been given. He's a guy who's got plenty of experience in football. He's a practicing lawyer, or he certainly was a practicing lawyer. He worked at West Brom. He worked for the Premier League. And there were many aspects to his interview that I thought were really quite interesting. And and what occurred to me this week when I was writing a little blog post about it was the connection between how well a club is run at executive level and how well it performs on the pitch. And I think Liverpool is a good example of it. We've seen them operate very smartly, put good people in in the top positions. Uh, you know, maybe they've had a bit of luck here and there with some of the recruitment that they've done, but they've invested well and, and reaped the rewards. Manchester City and Chelsea, very wealthy clubs, but they've, you know, City uh, got the best guys out of Barcelona to pave the way for Pep Guardiola. Chelsea, ruthless bastards at boardroom level, but these people know what they're doing. You can't argue with the track results there. And, and you know, to, to put Manchester United as an example, they're a bit of a shambles and it's not hard to see why because of the people that they have running it, despite the talent on the pitch and the resources and everything else. So I just wanted to get your broad view on that as a, as a concept, you know, the need to have a really good, robust executive team in order to make your football team perform or achieve the things that you want it to achieve. Yeah, 100%. And you referenced Chelsea and Manchester City there and Chelsea's CEO, I've forgotten her surname, Marina. Oh, um, yeah, I know the one yeah, you mean, yeah. I, I can't remember her surname right now, but um, she's been pretty widely lauded for the job she's done because I think Chelsea, even Chelsea realise we can't just throw money at this anymore because mm. there are other clubs that throw money at it. And you need to do something more. And, and I think Manchester City, for example, when you look at their level of consistency with the money they've spent, they're always first or second, first or second, mm. first or second, semi-final, final win, cups. You know, they, they don't, Man City don't have those kind of, oh, we finished 10th this year randomly because everyone hates the manager or we bought some players that we can't use. Mm. Like everyone's getting smarter. And you're right, the Liverpool at the top end have really paved the way for that. But there are also some clubs in the kind of, I guess, the middle of the Premier League who who look quite smart as well. So Crystal Palace have done a lot of good stuff on and off the pitch. Mm. They've got like a lovely new training ground and they realise that their academy is a big strength. So they're, they're really leaning into that. So everywhere clubs are trying to find edges now because frankly, in the Premier League, they're all so rich mm. that money on its own, I mean, money is the common denominator and it will... It's more or less the deciding factor, but within that, you're looking for edges. 
And um, and I look at um, it's it's interesting. We had a, a discussion about this on the Arsenal Vision podcast this week about how um, perhaps clubs like Chelsea and Manchester City are helped by the fact that they don't have a lot of history behind them. Whereas I think Manchester United have fallen into um, this Manchester United exceptionalism where they talk about like their DNA and their values and all yeah. of that. And very self-congratulate, self-congratulatory, if I can say that word. Just about. And I, th- I think Arsenal did something similar mm. as well, where it's, it's something a lot of big clubs go through and Liverpool went through it in the 90s where they lose track of what made them good and they start to believe that they're good just because of who they are Mm. and they start to believe that it's like magic and fairy dust and even after United's game against Villarreal on Wednesday they scored a goal on the counter-attack and I think Michael Carrick said something like you know intercepting and breaking is in Manchester United's DNA and it's just like (laughs) no it's fucking not that's just like that's just how you play football Yeah, and so you can get lost in that stuff and the sense I get from Arsenal is that they've started to realise this, that they need to smarten up that just being Arsenal and just having Emirates Stadium mm. is is not enough anymore. Um, whereas, I, like, I look at Spurs, for example, and I think Spurs are... I, I look at Spurs and think that they're where we were a couple of years ago, where they're kind of really trying to hang on mm. to big players that maybe they shouldn't be hanging on to and they should accept that they need to rebuild. But yeah. It, 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 it is really, really interesting. And there is definitely a very strong relationship with what happens um, at that level and, and what happens on the pitch. And I think I think you only need look at the Premier League table to confirm that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a, a podcast episode I keep talking about and one that I need to do at some point when you talk about Arsenal realising that the Emirates is not enough. And I have a theory that, you know, when some of the people who arrived at the club in the second half of Arsene Wenger's reign, uh, and in particular I'm thinking, obviously Stan Kroenke coming on board to a club that was massively consistent, Ivan Gazidis who came in, and, and these guys came in at a point where like the really hard struggle of getting to the Emirates and getting the money together and sacrificing Highbury and all of that, they didn't know anything about that. They came into this plush environment with corporate boxes and all of that kind of stuff. And I do wonder if that at some point has led in or has has been part of why there, there's been a sort of hands-off approach from the Cronkies because in some ways they came in and felt like, well, we don't need to do anything because this is working the way it is. That is a another discussion. But I think one of the things that we've talked about often um, in the wake of Arsene Wenger departing was like, you're going to go through a process with the manager or the the head coach, whatever it might be. And look, it remains to be seen whether Mikel Arteta is going to be the the guy who's going to bring success back or not. I mean, I hope he is because the sooner it happens, the better it's going to be for all of us. But, you know, nobody can say for sure that that's going to be the case. I, I don't think we talked about the need perhaps to to make changes at executive level too. So the pro- the structures you put in place post legacy manager like Wenger uh, are really important too. This is basically the third iteration of the executive team now um, where it didn't go well the first time with Gazidis and Mislintat and Sanyehi and then Sanyehi, that fell apart and uh, now we have this uh, <laughs> and now we have this current setup. You know, Tim Lewis came on board. We've brought in Richard Garlick. We have Edu is still there. Josh Kroenke is more involved now. You know, 
this is a new version of it. Uh, Vinay, of course, is the chief executive. But I think there's a commonality between all of these people, between the manager, technical director, chief executive, the owner. I'm, I'm putting in inverted commas because I'm just counting Josh as the owner, Richard Garlick, Per Mertesacker. They're all guys of about the same age. Now, I can't say if that's good or not, but it does give them some something in common when they're working together to to try and make Arsenal what we want Arsenal to be. Yeah, yeah. And and that um it remains to be seen because if it all goes wrong then we'll say, well, there's perhaps a lack mm. of diversity there and perhaps they're all too similar. But I, I do think I do have some sympathy for Arsenal in terms of when you have like a big shake up or even when you're putting in an, an executive team together, generally this kind of trial and error is just what happens. Mm. Like everyone could see the sense of having Mislintat and Raul Sanyehi um, on the same exact, like on paper, that, that seems like a brilliant idea. The guy with all the mm. contacts and the guy with all the, the data and the scouting networks, like on paper, that's an absolute dream. But of course they're human beings and they want power and you get internal politicking and, and struggles and things like that. So it, it, I think you do have to kind of suck it and see with a lot of these things. And I'm sure people listening out there will have worked in organizations. I worked in government organizations where this happened, director changes, executives resign, executives come in. Like there's generally a lot of upheaval in the year or two after there's a big change like mm. that. And again, you get some kind of some suck it and see, some tensions arise, a little bit of power struggle. It's just what happens at, mm. at, at corporations um, and, and sports teams included. So I like I hope that this third iteration is the kind of, okay, we've done a bit of trial and error. We think we know the lie of the land now. And you reference Richard Garlick there, and, and I think his role is really interesting. And I think his role, to me, looks like a, a, a consequence of that trial and error mm. in terms of it looks like he's taking a little bit of what Raul Sanyehi used to do, a little bit of what Dick Law maybe used to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not it, like it's quite fluid. Um, and, and it looks to me almost like with him and Tim Lewis, um, almost like... Um, Again, you, in government departments and, and other corporations, you get like NEDs, non-executive directors, who provide that oversight. Mm. Now, they tend to be more distant, but that that's the vibe I'm getting, that they're providing oversight. So you've got the kind of your Edus, your Per Mertesackers, uh, Claire Wheatley on the women's side, on the ground, doing mm. the day-to-day. -day. And then you've got like Tim Lewis and kind of Richard Garlick um, overseeing it all. Um, and, and in some respects, like with Richard Garlick and Claire Wheatley, I know that's like a line manager relationship, as, as effectively. She reports into him. Yeah, he said that he's basically got, um, as he put it in the in the interview, executive oversight of yep. of the women's team. So Claire, uh, Claire Wheatley does what she does, and then the next part in that chain of command chain of command sounds a little bit uh, formal or whatever. But like that 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 connection to the board to the executive board is Richard Garlick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Claire will work on the women's side every minute of her life, frankly, and she probably, I don't know, has a conversation with Richard Garlick once a week by way of update. Mm. And that's that's the kind of oversight you're looking at. Um, and, and that's quite interesting to me. So it, it looks anyway from the outside like they've kind of learned, okay, what, what did Dick Law do well that we need? And what did Dick Law not do well that we don't need? And ditto Raul Sanyehi. Mm. Um, and we can all speculate on those things um, and probably invite legal trouble doing so. 
Um, so let's not. <laughs> but, you know, like just kind of looking at what's worked and yeah. what's not and taking the best bits. And, and you know, I, ha- I still happen to think it's a massive shame that, that we never really got much out of Sven Mislintat before he went. I, mm. I really felt like that was a good way for Arsenal to try and go. And I, I think it's kind of a shame he lost that power struggle, particularly because he lost it to someone who ended up leaving anyway. Yeah. Um, but it, it, that's that's why, I mean, we'll never know really because we're not in the board meetings or anything like that. But that that to me, because my, my biggest concern really was, I understand that Stan Kroenke is not there every day of the week. I'm not even sure I want him there every day of the week. Sure. I don't really care where he is every day of the week, to be honest. Um, but it's more can you appoint competent people to do this and how long is it going to take you to find out they're not competent? And it looks to me like putting people like Tim Lewis and Richard Garlick in is a bit more of a kind of, I guess like a safeguard is maybe a negative way of looking at it because that's not just what it's about. But if like Edu or Per Mertesacker or Claire Wheatley or whoever is out of their depth, like you'd think that Tim Lewis and Richard Garlick would be across it quickly and yeah. would say, Josh, Stan, sure. uh, get rid of this person. They're an idiot well, or, or whatever. Yeah, no, no, no. I know what you mean because I think, you know, from reading the interview, and I do recommend people read it because it's, it's very interesting, is he comes across as kind of like a, a facilitator. So when he came in, he was working the transfer window with, uh, with Edu, with um, Mikel Arteta, with... <laughs> those things are always disconcerting when they go off in the background I'm going to answer the door um, but you know he was working on that side of things he's got his office at London Colney uh, opposite Permer to Sacker so he's across the academy stuff we've already talked about his role um, you know with the women's team having executive oversight of that so as this guy who's in the middle of everything, he's trying to, you know, I guess it, it does give you the knowledge of what's going on, whereas previously it felt a bit like if the head of football reported back to Josh and Stan that everything was fine, yeah. they said, well, everything's fine. He says we don't know any different. So, you know, to have those different arms of it, I think, is, is really good. Another aspect of it, I, I think, is, we looked at the summer as uh, one in which Arsenal put in place a strategy uh, when it came to recruitment, when it came to transfers and incoming business and all of that kind of stuff. Um, And that's something that's, I think, overdue. I think we can all get behind that, whether all the signings work out or not, it remains to be seen, but it feels a lot better to, um, you know, go to Anfield and maybe one or two of your new signings don't have a good night, but it's better to see a young player make a mistake that they can learn from than seeing a Willian or that kind of signing just go through the motions without any real need to learn anything. So that's an interesting part. And and there was something he said here. Um, he was talking about plans for players and contracts. And this was something that Sanye, he said, when a player gets to two years out, we've got a decision to make because, you know, we either renew or we sell because their value is at their peak and we don't want them running down their deal, you know, getting to 12 months and then saying, well, I'll just stay for another year and leave for free. And he does talk about this again. He's talking about um, the women's team, the men's team, the academy teams. He says, we get a plan in place, we start to execute it. It's happening now for next summer and then the one after that. It's a longer-term view. He's talking about contracts here, not just transfers, contract renewals. We have a strategy for each player depending 
on their situation. There are other factors, of course, what the player wants, what the agent wants, what clubs are interested in them. Your strategy for a player may not be what a player wants, or you may not be able to execute that strategy because of the market or or circumstances or, you know, a pandemic that fucks everything up for everyone. Um, but it's encouraging to know that there is a plan for these players and that they do have an idea of what they want to do, at least whether they can get around to doing it is, is another thing. Yeah, absolutely. So if we get an offer for someone who mm. maybe has two years left on their deal and there is, you know, maybe you can take that rather yeah. than going, mm, mm, we don't really know what we're going to do with them yet. Mm. Or, um, you know, an, an, another, I guess, example from our recent past is is the Aubameyang contracts. Now, I, I still really like and rate and value Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Mm. Um, but I've done a piece on him today and looking at like his his data since he's been at Arsenal and what what the 2019-20 season shows you, um, which is you know he got the contract in the summer of 2020. Is he actually overperformed all of his key metrics that year? So maybe have a plan for that player rather than him running like hot on his XG for a little while and winning us the FA Cup and going, uh, all right, yeah, we'll give you the contract. Like if mm. you have like KPIs in mind, for example, if you go, okay, if this player's hitting these kind of, these kind of, uh, you know, KPIs, data, metrics, goals, assists, clean sheets, whatever, whatever you want, mm. then, then, you know, and, and then it, it, it puts you in a stronger position perhaps when that player's agent approaches you and says, this is how much we want for the new contract. And you can say, well, actually we're thinking if he hits this, then yeah, we'll go to that. But if he doesn't, we'll probably go a bit below. Mm. And then that that by you know that then creates the competition in the squad. It creates incentives and things like that, rather than kind of flying by the seat of your pants and going, uh, "We're going to give this guy a contract because he's just won us the FA Cup, and we're very grateful for that." Um, and and you know, I'm not necessarily saying it was a bad idea to renew Aubameyang's contract, but it it didn't seem like a very thought out decision or if the rumours are true about offers for Lacazette from Roma and, and you know, if if you know you're not going to extend his contract, then then sell him when those come up. Don't scratch your head and mm. go, oh God, we don't know what we're going to do with this player yet. So yes, and, and maybe they just, maybe it was just a question of resource. Maybe they just needed extra hands in there like Richard Garlick or Tim Lewis to be able to do that. Again, we have probably all worked in jobs where we've worked in teams where we're short staffed or whatever and that's when you do work task to task because you don't have time to get the spreadsheets out and do the big planning meetings and things like that. So maybe it was just a shortage of resource. Maybe it was a shortage of competence. I don't know. Mm. But but it is gratifying. I've, I've been a bit kind of... Um, I haven't wanted to give Arsenal too much credit for this, you know, strategy of buying players of 23 and under because, to be honest, I think it's quite obvious. Yeah, no, um, I mean... It- I, I agree, but I think it's... It's better than what went before. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, I don't think... I've said this before, but you don't... You, you shouldn't have to go through buying, like, getting Willian on a three-year deal <laughs> to know that that's yeah, a yeah, bad yeah, yeah. idea. Yeah. The same way as if I tell you to go and put your hand in the toaster, you don't have to do it to know that it's a bad idea. Like, sure. it is evidently a bad idea. Yeah. And, you know, buying good young players... Um, and, and they're a similar profile of young player, right? Because mm. they're all still quite experienced. They've all, you know, played plenty of games. They're not in the 17, 18 age bracket. They're in the 22, 23. So like mm. coming towards prime. So that's, that's all good. But to be honest, 
I, I don't really know why that couldn't have been done a year or two no, that, earlier. That, that's fair. I mean, it's not exactly groundbreaking, but it still no. feels like a step forward because so yeah. much of what has come before, I think, is a consequence of like the last vestiges of the Arsene Wenger years where recruitment was not necessarily strategic. And I'm not sure Arsene's uh, recruitment was always strategic. It, it felt very much like vibey. What's the yep. mood here? I think I'll do a bit of this. What's everyone want me to do? I think I'll do the opposite of that. Um, you know, and then there was the 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 post Wenger, the Emery stuff, and I, you know, I'm not blaming Emery for any recruitment at all because I don't think he had any choice, as we could see from some of the decisions that were made. And then there was still this Anyehi Edu thing when Arteta was head coach. So I agree with you. You know that there is nothing particularly groundbreaking about it, but I'm very pleased to see it because yeah. the upside is is obvious and the downside is not quite as as um damaging you know as as having to let a, a willian go after 12 months yeah. and give him a load of money to go away you know yeah and that's probably another lesson we learned when we tried to move to this model of like a technical director with emery it was mm. very much you will work with the players we give you and that didn't work and i think we realized there has to be mm. at least a bit of synergy between the technical director and the coach so you know, it can't just be, here's a load of players. There you go. Those are the players I think are good. Like, mm. you know, that. but at the same time, you don't just want the manager. Like, you want that to be like a two-way conversation. And I do feel like it is more of a two-way conversation. And I think you can see Arteta's increasing influence because some of the guys that were brought in on his watch, but I don't think were brought in by him, like Cedric, like Pablo Mari, they're not playing Mm. And they look much more like Edu's guys than Arteta's. Well, they guys. were they were certainly Sanyehi Edu signings uh, yeah. because of you know when they happened and, and everything else. Um, and it's quite funny because you see people pull out articles and stuff like that, and, and Arteta says this says a nice thing about Pablo Marie or says a nice thing about Cedric, and everyone's going, well, that tells you you know that's his player but I mean what's he going to say in public yeah. if you know anything about what Mikel Arteta does and the way that he operates you know he's never going to to criticize his players in public what happens behind the scenes uh, I think we all can see that there have been some issues in the two years he's been here yeah. so he's not afraid to have those uh, those difficulties with players but publicly he's never going to do anything but no. like protect the sanctity of the dressing room and, and if, in some way the, the player themselves if, if you ever want an insight into what a manager thinks of a player, just look at the selection. That's all you have to look at. Yeah. Look at how, how many minutes do they get? That tells you everything. You don't yeah. need anything else. Just moving on, because this is something that cropped up again in Mikel Arteta's press conference. Um, and that is Arsene Wenger and a possible return to the club. And I spoke to Philippe Claire about this and like, there's no scenario in Philippe's mind where Arsene would come in and be like a an influential director or something like that um nor would he want a, a simply um toothless ambassadorial role or whatever it is but I think there is some sign that there's a thaw between um the manager and at least some aspects of the club, if not necessarily the hierarchy, but certainly with Mikel Arteta, who said that he spoke to him at the film preview. Per Mertesacker is his captain. Edu is a former player. So so those things. I don't know if you had a chance yet to listen to Arsene's interview on um, Wrighty's house. 
mm-hmm. um, with, with with Ian Wright and Musa and Ryan. And I thought there was a very interesting little snippet there. Uh, the piece that, that Amy did in the, the Athletic where they talked about the entrance to the training ground. There's a big picture of Arsene Wenger and a quote on the wall from him. I can't remember exactly what it was. Just look inside yourself to see the possibility of what you can be or something like that. But on that, he he said that, that he had to choose the quote hmm. that went on the wall. I thought that was quite interesting simply because it shows that there's been a, a, a an involvement between himself and the club. It might just have been somebody calling him up and saying, look, we're going to do this, think of a quote. But there does seem to be something going on. And Arteta saying today, um, you know, I want him uh, close to me, something like that. He said, I'd like him to be much closer personally to me because he'd be a great help uh, for me and a great help for the club. So, I mean, do you see a, a situation where where he can be present if at the same time slightly detached and uninvolved or does his presence given his history and stature and everything like that is there a danger that it could overshadow whoever's there like you know like we saw at at, uh, Old Trafford when Liverpool are 5-0 up and the camera's on Ferguson and he's got a face like a bulldog licking piss off a nettle which we all love but the temptation would be obviously for the sky cameras to go straight to arson in those situations if that was uh, you know a, a case that he was there if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I think first off, my thoughts on this, uh, that I've I've got a lot of um, admiration for how Arteta's spoken about this. It would be really, even though there's been like a three and a half year remove now, it would be really easy for a young coach like Arteta to still feel, no, nope, I need to assert myself in this space. This is my terrain. Mm. I feel threatened by that. And he obviously doesn't. And, and and I think that's right. I don't think he needs to at this stage. So I, I've got a lot of respect for the, the, the quite mature way that he's broaching this and mm. he clearly doesn't want it to be a thing. Um, and when you look at the playing squad, is there anyone other than Aubameyang who played under Wenger? Lacazette. And even uh, Lacazette, yeah, yeah, had, had his last Chambers, season. Chambers, so. Holding. Yeah, yeah. There's a few... There's, there's a few around, but not really that many. I, I do think we've come to a stage where enough time has passed and there's two managers, there's a there's a buffer there. Yeah. We won't get the, is he going to come back? Like as a manager question, like that's not going to happen. Yeah, he's ruled um, that out himself anyway, hasn't he? He's yeah, basically it, said, I don't want to do that anymore because I've, you know. Exactly. And he he's already got a job that's quite involved and and quite challenging. And that I think, you know, I think obviously like this world cup project, whatever we think of it motivates him and it, you know, and, and that's kind of fine. So when Arteta talks about this, I think what he means is not like a role or anything like that, Mm. but you know, maybe coming to the training ground much in the way that like David Seaman has with the goalkeepers, right. Just like that kind of, he's not the goalkeeping coach, um, but it's just like a little bit of oversight, um, again, David Seaman's been gone a long time now, so it's not like oh, like Aaron Ramsdale must have been about I don't know five when he left Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. like, there isn't that kind of oh my god, it's David Seaman. Like, it's just oh, okay, David. I, I know this guy. I've heard of this guy. So it's like there's enough of a remove mm. there, and and you know if if they welcome that, and and I think one of the things that's really interesting about this clubs, Again, this is going back to like if your club has a lot of history um, kind of point, which, which Arsenal do. And in the past, 
How clubs deal with their own history is actually very, very interesting. So in the 1960s, a lot of the players talked about how they hated seeing all the pictures of the guys from the 30s everywhere. And every time, <laughs> and obviously they were all still alive. So like every time there was a club function in the 60s, you know, Cliff Bastin would be there. Ted Drake would be there. Yeah. And like in the 60s, Arsenal even did that thing where they took the white sleeves off their shirts and went all red. And that was actually because they wanted to break with that past because they felt it was so overbearing. But one of the things I think Don Howe said to them is like, look, if you don't like those pictures on the wall, go and put your own ones up. That was the response. It was like, no, no, we should embrace mm. this. And you can see that in George Graham's management. When George Graham came in, he was very, no, no, let's embrace our history. Like, I want to bring in some of the stuff that I learned from Bertie Mee. And it's interesting because, you know, Arteta was, was a player under Wenger. He was a captain under Wenger. So he's felt that influence very, very keenly. And he obviously looks at it as, as something that people can benefit from, probably not on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I, I think that's quite mature of him. And I think that's a, a healthy way to try and do things. As, as for like Wenger, like what would the return look like? I think if it happens, like person, I mean, personally, I don't know how important it is. Um, that's like a question for the players and, and the manager. I, I don't know how important it is for him to have like, any kind of connection with the setup, I, I would hate it, not to be too morbid, I would hate it if Arsene Wenger never came back um, to the Emirates. Like, I'd really like to see that happen at least once. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be like uh, get the marching elephants out and yeah, fucking yeah, have yeah. a parade and all that kind of stuff. Because he he'd could hate just, that anyway. Yeah, exactly. He could just go to a game. And I think once yeah. you once it happens once... Then it's over. Like I think this yep. is a this is a one of those situations where you kind of don't talk to somebody for a while, and then it becomes super awkward. And like yeah. all it would take is a quick phone call just to go, yeah, okay, yeah, we're fine now. You know, once it happens once, I think it would be it would be okay. It doesn't have to be like we're going to name the stadium after him on this day yeah. and every football that they kick has got an Arsene Wenger face on it and everyone, you know, everyone who turns up gets a free Arsene Wenger inflatable that they can wave from their seat. You know, it doesn't have to be pomp and ceremony. It just has to be a thing. It just has to be what it is. Man returns to club to watch football game, gives everyone a wave and, and I think after that yeah. it becomes a lot easier, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's more likely and I think what Arteta might be getting at here is, is more like training ground first and foremost. And, mm. you know, whether whether like Stuart and Pricey go and do their thing and take a photo of it or not, maybe not in the first instance, mm. I don't know, but I, I'd, I'd like to think that that's, that's probably what Arteta's getting at and probably where it would start, if mm. at all, like just come to the training ground and like talk to the players. Like they all know your history at this club and like they come into this stadium all the time and they know that, you know, that you built it with your own two hands and your own money and all of that. Um, obviously I'm joking there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you have to clarify but, you know, like, these days. <laughs> to, to have him as like an inspirational figure from like recent history. Yeah. Um, and like I, you know, and, and and as someone who's just been around football for a long time and knows what he's talking about and was an elite level coach, like that's you know that they can't it can't hurt no. if he, if he just rocks up at Colney and chats to them for or maybe chats to them one to one or yeah like, I don't know just talks to them for half an hour or whatever yeah I think that's probably more what Arteta's getting at um, the stadium thing I think would might be more difficult for Wenger just just for the reasons you highlight like. 
there, there, whether there's pomp and ceremony, a camera will pick it up. Mm. And I just don't think he'd like that, um, which, which I get. But at the same time, like I said, like, um, yeah, without being too morbid, because he's a very, oh, as the documentary showed, he still like goes running every morning and is in incredible shape. So hopefully he's got many, many years ahead of him. Mm. But I'd hate it if, like, he never came back. Yeah. Like, I realised that first time might be a little bit awkward for him, but I, I do hope it happens, even if it's only once. Yeah, same. You know, it would be a real shame if that relationship that was so... Um, that brought so much enjoyment to all of us was irrevocably broken. You know, it really would be awful. Um, so I hope that will be the case. Let's just talk very quickly, just a little bit of football. Arsenal's unbeaten run came to an end last weekend against Liverpool. Um... I'm not sure I want to do the, like, how do you view the defeat to Liverpool thing? Because uh, people will say, we're young, they're better. Let's just put this behind us. Other people will feel like being beaten 4-0 at Anfield and getting a pasting there again is just beyond the pale. So, you know, you're never going to, not that you're going to win or you're going to convince people otherwise, but I, I don't want to tell anyone how they should think about this. You know, it's it's up to um, themselves how they feel about that particular game and that particular defeat. But I'm curious as to what you're looking for now after this, because I think if we were looking at the fixture list, and we were saying, well, at some point, there's going to be a blip. There's going to be a bump in the road. It seemed pretty obvious <laughs> that that bump was going to be uh, on Merseyside. And so mm -hmm. it proved and, and everything else. So what are you looking for now when you see this team take the field on, on Saturday against Newcastle? Um, you know, the response, I think, is what we're able to learn more from than the Liverpool game itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. How how I and many others feel about the Anfield defeat will be entirely wrapped up in the response to mm. it. Um, what I'm looking for on Saturday is I want us to beat Newcastle and beat them well. And uh, it's not something we've managed under Arteta that often. Don't get me wrong. If you offer me 1-0 now, I'll take it. I'll, like... I'll always take 1-0 to mm. Arsenal if you offer it to me, pretty much. But one, I think like the next key development in this team is to, is to really put some of these teams away. And we did it with Newcastle, I think, twice last season. Did we play them in the FA Cup as well? And, um, and, and yeah, like they're, they're one – or maybe I'm thinking of just before um, COVID hit, we beat them 4-0 at the Emirates. And I think we beat them 3-0 last year. Yeah, that's it. So, like, under Arteta, we have... Newcastle is one of the few teams we have managed to really put the boot into, and I'd really like to see that again. Uh, needless to say, I'd like to see that every week, but I think that's the next development in mm. this team. Like, in that kind of run, you know, we we kind of found something which always felt to me relatively short-term, that kind of 4-4, four, four, like 4-2-2-2 four, two, two, two formation or whatever you want to call it. Like, And I think that's fine. I think there is a place for that in a season when you've got something that works and you're on a little run. You just stay with it until it doesn't work anymore. And now he's got a chance to perhaps introduce some other players or go back to the 4-2-3-1 or whatever he wants to do. And that system, that's up the sleeve. Like We can bring that out. Um, maybe in-game and maybe we mm. can improve the way we change games from the bench as a result. 
Um, but for me, I just I just really like um, to go on Saturday and for the game to be over by half time <laughs> and to see some good football and yeah. and to just beat them three or four nil because it's just something. That that's still the question mark, right? Over, over this tee. I mean, I know people have more question marks than that, myself included. But I think the next one in our development is the the next two really are. Let's put the boot into some of these teams. Like we've had some like some good one nils, but let's like let's have some two and three and fours. But, but the other thing yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then the other thing is when we're one nil up or 2-0 up, can we find a better balance between counter-attacking and just defending our 18-yard area? Yeah. That's that's another thing. I mean, again, against Newcastle, I'd like to think that there won't be any counter-attacking that we'll just, we'll just keep going for them. Mm. Um, but maybe like, you know, in that Leicester away game, no, no one's saying keep going all-out attack at 2-0, not at this stage of our development, but can we find a better balance? Use use the scoreline to your advantage in terms of how you attack, you know, because you yeah. the opposition have to come at you. That's that's natural. That's a consequence of being 2-0 yeah. up. You, they're going to have to push forward and leave space. How efficiently we can use that space, I think, is is the thing. And I think this ties into the overall sense that, chance creation goal scoring is something that we could really improve yeah and and let's get um um, because we're going to need them let's get another thing that hasn't happened that much in this period like martinelli's not had many minutes pepe's not had many minutes you know erdgaard's been coming on for lacazette um largely because he's cooked by 60 to 65 minutes albeit we get like a good innings out of him to that stage so let's let's see we're going to need to integrate some of those guys a little bit more over this period, mm. be it from the bench or rotating them in, like let let's see if we can get some attackers other than Saka, Smith Rowe, and Abamyang mm. um, really going here. Let's see if we can do a bit of rotation. Let's see if we can make like a proper match winning change um, from the substitutes bench. Th- those are some like I guess some key markers I'd really like to see um, before the new year. Is there any, just finally, is there any specific individual changes that you would like to see for the Newcastle game? Is there anything that really, look, uh, they can be as important as you want them to be, I guess. But like, you know, if you were picking the team, is there anything in particular you would do to try and facilitate that kind of improvement? Yeah, there there are three areas I'd look at. I would definitely reintroduce Erdegaard. Um, I think it's time for that. Um, now and actually we're likely to play a deep block. Um, so I, I, I think that makes sense anyway, even leaving the Liverpool result aside. I think Tierney coming back in for Tavares, um, I don't think that has to be like a big chiding for Tavares or no. anything or a big reckoning for him. We can I just agree. say, yeah, yeah. look, you got in ahead of Tierney when he was available twice. You're doing great. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, the third one I'd look at, I'm not definitely sure I'd do it, um, because obviously there are issues over the guy's confidence and things like that. But but maybe Maitland-Niles um, and Lokonga, maybe that's worth a look. Obviously, there's a balance there because you don't want to like ruin Lokonga's confidence and say, look, that first five minutes of Anfield, that was terrible. God, we can't we can't play you. Yeah. Um, or whether it's more, uh, maybe a bit of a reward for Maitland-Niles, who has played well, who played really well um, in that Watford game, I think. Um, and And 
probably I, I understand why, and I think Arteta's right to go with the guys who he knows they're his guys, whereas Maitland Niles, we don't know that yet. But that that's one like if um I see the lineup on Saturday and Maitland Niles is in for Lukonga, I won't complain mm. about that. But it's not something that I'd um I won't complain if it doesn't happen, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I mean I think you make a good point there because if Sambi doesn't play, it's not necessarily punishment or yeah. You know, I think sometimes we can overanalyze, and I realize, you know, um, we're guilty of this as much as anybody, seeing as we write and talk about Arsenal all week long, week after week after week. So I, I accept that. But, you know, sometimes we think about how things will impact a footballer when they don't really. You know, mm. if you play pretty poorly in the first five, ten minutes of a half at Anfield, you get taken off, you don't start the next game, you're not sitting there as a footballer going, why did this happen to me? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so I, I think that's interesting. And same with Tierney Tavares. I think it's it's just a question of bringing back the guy who's been there, done that, and you know, and you know, it wasn't long ago we were thinking if Arsenal are going to attack well, we need Kieran Tierney in the team to do his thing yeah. down the left hand side. So look, yeah, well, look, let's see. Hopefully, we can uh, put Newcastle to the sword uh, on Saturday, um, respond well to the defeat to Liverpool, and uh, kick on from there. We've got Man United in the week as well. Uh, just want to very finally, finally talk to you about uh, there is a new episode of the Arsenal Women Arsecast out right now, which mm-hmm. people can get on their podcast feed. That's a, a November mailbag edition. But you do have something special coming up for the FA Cup final, which is taking place next week. So just give us a, a quick insight into what's going on there. Yeah, sure. So on Wednesday, we'll have an episode out uh, looking ahead to the FA Cup final against Chelsea, which is on Sunday, the 5th of December. So we'll have a little bit of Chelsea insight from uh, Jesse Parker Humphreys, and they really know their stuff about Chelsea. And we'll also have exclusive player interviews with Noel Maritz and Steph Catley. Um, about that game. Also, um, Arsenal are holding uh, an open training session at the Emirates ahead of that. So um, we'll do a little bit of video content around that on the Friday before the game as well. And then, of course, there's the Barcelona game at Emirates Stadium on the 9th of December. We'll have another episode out on the 7th of December um, in which I'll talk to Alex Ibaceta, our co-host who knows everything about Barcelona. But we'll also have an exclusive interview with Lotta Wubben Moy um, on that podcast as well about that game at the Emirates. Obviously, Lotta, she's from um, she's from uh, Stoke Newington, big Arsenal fan, um, so massive occasion for her. And uh, probably by the time you're listening to this, we also have an exclusive interview with Jordan Nobbs um, on Osblog News. So, yeah, d- talking to a lot of players um, at the moment in what's a, a massive period for Arsenal women. Sure is. Uh, well, look, the the work is great. And uh, for people who want to get into Arsenal women who maybe don't know, there is uh, all kinds of stuff over on Arsblog News. There's a, a beginner's guide and all kinds of stuff as well. If you, if you can't find it, drop uh, either myself or Tim a tweet and we'll point you in the right direction uh, for that. So, uh, okay. Um, Thank you, Tim, as always. Uh, Keep up the great work and we'll chat soon. My pleasure as always. Tim, as I'm sure you know, is on Twitter at Stilberto, at Stilberto. Uh, You can read his column every Thursday on arsblog.com and his coverage, unrivaled, unparalleled coverage indeed of the Arsenal women can be found on Arsblog News and video stuff, which we're doing more of this season as well. You can check that out uh, on Arsblog News, the Twitter, or indeed the Arsblog YouTube channel. Yes, we do have one of those. There's not a great deal of video stuff goes on at the podcast go up there, but we do have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that to see more of Tim and the Arsenal women's stuff and occasional bits and pieces from less significant figures like, I don't know, me. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. This week, the British government published a report from the fan-led review into football, football governance, uh, the idea of an independent regulator sparked by the Super League and some of the various issues that football has been facing down the years. With me to talk about that, some of the details of it, how it might affect Arsenal and more from the Arsenal Supporters Trust. It's Tim Payton. Hi, Tim. Hi there. The review came out on Wednesday evening. It has been pretty widely well received. And if I could uh, talk to you about the response of Malcolm Clark from the uh, Football Supporters Association, he said, I set four tests. One would make it less likely that we'll see the collapse of clubs. Second, it would improve finances. Third, it would stop a Super League. And four, does it increase fan engagement? I would say it passes all four tests. It's a pretty important step. And he goes on to say, if I could paraphrase Neil Armstrong, strong it's a small step for government a giant leap for football fans your response to that and the review in general (laughs) well i'm not sure i can match that but i do agree with the sentiment i certainly think if it were a football match it would be one nil at half time there's still some way to go Mm. in implementing these proposals if i just give you the, the context andrew and of course i spoke to you at the time of the super league around some of these issues And the AST were one of the supporter groups that got to meet with the Prime Minister at the time in the campaign to stop the Super League. And he he said some powerful words that helped, including that he'd introduced legislation to stop it. But at the same time and in the same meeting, he committed to us that he would set up this review of football's ownership and governance and saw that things were broken. And he put in charge an MP called Tracy Crouch, who is a, a very good member of Parliament, a big football fan, a football coach. And she's been doing that review for a few months. The AST's given written evidence, given oral evidence. She's met with lots of fans. And as you referenced, she, she published a report yesterday evening. I would say it has about 70% of what the AST was asking for. And we, we asked for the kind of the world, if you like. Um, it's, it's, it's really good. I think if it now goes forward to legislation and if it is enacted, it will have a positive benefit on every football fan and every Arsenal fan. Isn't that the thing, though, if it goes through to legislation? Because without wanting to make this too political, I don't think it would be unreasonable for me to say that this government and that particular prime minister doesn't have a great track record in things which people might consider a lot more important than football itself. So, you know, these um, 
recommendations, such as they are, do then have to be put in place? They do. And, it, and of course, we have to be aware of that. But I'm already encouraged because today they had a short debate in Parliament to discuss the report. And the sports minister stood up and said that the government agreed with the report and would bring forward proposals for an independent regulator. Mm. He also used the word at pace. And then the opposition aren't taking a different view. The only view they're taking is to kind of kick the government to say you should go even faster than we thought of it first, yeah. which is like the good, that's where you want an issue when, 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 you, when your politicians divide, that they're all arguing over who can do it first. I think the government have perhaps woken up that, it, I think it's a fact that more people watch football in the country than vote in a general election. So maybe if they try and overlap the two, it will work. You're right, and we'll be looking to AST members and Arsenal members more widely to perhaps keep the pressure on their members of parliament. But given the commitments we have, particularly today in the House, I do think something is going to happen. What do you think are the most encouraging aspects of this? Because it, it came off the back of the Super League um, shit show, I think is probably the right way to put it. Well, I can probably put it like that, even if you can't. Um, the reaction, not just from the clubs who were involved in that Super League, but also you know football fans up and down uh, the country um, who objected to it for very, very obvious reasons. Um I mean, what do you think are the key things that have come out of this? I know you spoke when we spoke um, on the podcast a few months ago, things like a golden share, which will give a veto to um, fan groups or whoever's involved in that to um, to block certain aspects, things which I suppose are, are, are sacrosanct, like the location of a football club, the name, the stadium, things like that. So... What are the things, the key things that have come out of this? OK, there's one overarching key thing, which is actually to introduce an independent regulator. Because mm. by definition, that's not football owners marking their own homework <laughs> or deciding yeah. what their rules will be. So in itself, that then creates the power and the kind of independence to cover lots of things. Let me do a very fast checklist and you can come back. I think we'll see better financial regulation of clubs which might not matter for Arsenal in, in one respect, but it does if you're a Derby County fan or a Berry fan or we see so many sad stories of clubs going under. They're also going to have stricter duties to try and control pumping in of money and putting controls of that so there's a, sort of not, a, not an arms race that is unmanageable for others to up with. So the financial control, the golden share, as you said, which will give fans a, a veto or a say on really fundamental things like Arsenal leaving Islington or Arsenal entering some franchise league like a Super League. A, a better engagement arrangements at clubs. So there'll be a, a, a shadow board which will have stronger powers to see reports and, and have consultation and dialogue with the club and report back to fans. Um Independent non-executive directors. The clubs will have to appoint independent non-executive directors, which I think is really important. Arsenal's board needs more diversity. It needs broader skill sets. But if you have independent directors, let me choose my language carefully here, maybe you have people kicking the tyres a little bit more in the era of Raul Sinelli. Um, you understand the point I'm making there? Maybe you have people kicking the tyres a bit more around... Um, appointments of managers or how fans are treated, I, you know, joining the Super League even. I mean, I have said to 
Josh Cronkey and Tim Lewis more than once now, if you'd have had independent directors or supporters in the boardroom, you wouldn't have joined the Super League because we all knew it was a shit show from the minute it was raised. So there's lots of different things there. Um, but I think... I always say to people, I, I think about what's good for Arsenal, but I also think about what's good for football. Because if we have competitive balance and the pyramid, then ask, it's good for Arsenal, isn't it? Because we all know we, we exist in a community of other football clubs and other football fans. Yeah, I mean, the, the one about the shadow board is quite interesting. There's a very good thread, which I will link to. It's from a Twitter account called uh, at Against League 3 and they lay out some of the key uh, aspects of this review. He says, a shadow board will be a democratically elected group of around 5 to 12 supporters with a remit to discuss issues like business plans, operational issues, stadiums, commercial performance with senior club representatives. The club will be required to engage with the shadow board at least once a quarter with the CEO or equivalent in attendance twice a year. I mean, is that something along the lines or close to the advisory board that has been put in place uh, that you're a part of that met with the club last week? Or is this something that has a little more teeth, if you like? I think the proposals put forward in this report and through the regulator would strengthen what Arsenal are doing. But yes, the advisory board is moving in that direction. And of course, wh why have Arsenal moved there? They saw the Crouch review launched and they were trying to see it off almost. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Don't need an independent regulator. We can do our own thing. And I, I, I've been to one of those meetings and I, I, can, I can tell you a bit more about it. It's better than not having the meeting. It's not as good as the meeting at Liverpool where their advisory board is being written into the Articles of Association of the Club and certain issues are they are giving what they call consent to the advisory board, like leaving Anfield, like what competitions they play in, or at Manchester United where they have started a process of saying that they will make some equity, some shares available to the Manchester United fans with full voting rights. And that's the one area, Andrew, that the report didn't get to that I would be disappointed in, because I do think you'll recall when, when fans were shareholders, I think that's custodianship in its own right, and it's a way that you use the traditional ownership model. But yes, very much, I would say, I would probably say that Arsenal's advisory board was a kind of five out of ten, judged against where the where the independent review has got to, but all in the same space. And it's got to be good. Um, I think the advisory board has got a long way to go, but I also think it was the first time I got to sit around a table with Josh Cronkey ever and talk issues. So that's improvement, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned diversity and certainly there was an issue. I know some people spoke about diversity of the, the Arsenal advisory board themselves and the club make the point that, you know, there was a, a, a representation from LGBT gooners, disabled gooners, etc., uh, etc. Et but it did seem to be a lot of, you know, familiar um, white faces there. And well, that there was a, an onus on some of the groups like yourselves to put forward representatives who might provide some of that diversity as well as perhaps the club themselves bringing on board let's say a role a specific role for uh, a woman to be the representative for the women's team which is you know sounds a bit reductive but you know what i'm saying i i do absolutely know what you're saying and i think they didn't think that true enough the ast did actually say to the um to arsenal when it was being set up if you could give us two places, we would guarantee the diversity. We also felt there was a case for one or two more places because, as you know, we are very much the group that 
does the shadow board type work following the finances and the advisory. And we try and work like that anyway. I think you may have had my colleague Akil on and, and we do actually within our board of, I think, six, we do have a woman member and, and different diversity. But I think Arsenal will correct that. And it's important. One other thing I did see on a few comments that I think must be careful. I think it would be quite a backward step to say, oh, we'll get someone from the women's team set up or who supports the women's team. Because I think that, you know, the, I think we have to see it that men can support the women's team and uh, women can support the men's team. Of course. And, and, and you've got to think of it like that. No, no, no. I agree with you. I do agree with you. But I do think that perhaps, you know, as a first step in that regard, that might be something that's worth yeah, considering, sure you know. I'm corrected by my next meeting. And actually, the AST have already given some names and ideas mm. of they could use. Okay, well, that's good. And look, you know, you, you know yourself from what we do on Arsblog that we try and broaden the, the horizons of the Arsenal women's team uh, as much as we possibly can. So it's not simply to say you have to be a woman to support the Arsenal women's team or represent them, but it does seem like a, a decent step. Of course, there's also another point here, which I, I have made to the club, which is, of course, they could bring to the meeting the woman member of their board. Right. Well, uh, another aspect of this review <laughs> is is ownership, I guess, and and one of the one of the things that people um, maybe feel powerless about, or football fans feel powerless about, is is the owner uh, of their football club, and I think given we're facing Newcastle at the weekend, that's a case in point where they felt powerless and disenfranchised by Mike Ashley, but now are celebrating uh, the fact that the Saudi investment fund is the owner of the club, de facto owned by the Saudi state, of course. But, you know, when they're bringing in billions and billions, um, you know, that's cause for celebration, I guess, when your uh, club is going to be uh, rolling in it and potentially buying all the players that you want them to buy. But there didn't seem to be quite as much focus on the fit and proper person, if that's the right way of putting it, you know, establishing who could and should own football clubs. Is that a bit of a disappointment or do you think that's something that can be, um, you know, uh, addressed via the legislation? Well, Tracy Crouch in her report does refer to having more test of someone's integrity. She doesn't spell that out that much, but suggests that the regulator could do it and to ref update and reform the owners and directors test. So I think that could be in there. But I also am realistic here that I think we have a, a government and a general political approach, which is overseas investors can buy into this country. And, you know, that the Saudi investment fund could buy Sainsbury's supermarket. They could buy Lloyds Bank. Mm. I suspect at the end of the day, the government isn't going to um, stop them buying a football club. But where we might see improvement is if they do buy a football club, they're going to have to appoint INEDs onto their board. They're going to have to have a shadow board with supporters. They're going to have to sign up to a, a diversity code. And you might have seen reference to the, the Sport England Governance Code. So I think there are lots of ways that you can perhaps force the ownership of that club into a better positioning and around these issues. I would hope that they could perhaps look at the fundamental issue of do they buy in or not, but that doesn't seem to be the geopolitics of this government's approach at the moment. No, I mean, it's very difficult to tell somebody that they can't buy a football club when you're quite happy to sell them arms and things like that. So Exactly. I and I just, can I just bite in one second on a point about Saturday? It's actually the Rainbow Laces Day, mm. which 
I, I, you know, ironic in a way that it would fall when we play Newcastle. But, you know, I know that there will be a lot of action by the club. They're doing some great things to support the gay gooners and, you know, Arsenal is for all message. And just anyone who's listening to, to, to be aware of that and show their support. For the first time, the AST is going to go to the photo call with the gay gooners before and support them. And I think particularly as we're playing Newcastle, it's really important that we can get that message out that football is for everybody, no matter who your club owner is. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose it's, it's quite interesting that the uh, the Newcastle uh, LGBT plus uh, fan group uh, United with Pride have left the Pride in Football Network because of um, well because of some of the complications that they um, seem to have uh, experienced because of the the Saudi ownership. So oh, and I find that sad. And I haven't been in touch with them, but I have been in touch with the. Newcastle Supporters Trust and they're obviously feeling their way after years of Mike Ashley but I did point out to them as I think one or two of the other trusts did that establishing a relationship with your club doesn't mean being totally sycophantic I mean look at the AST and Arsenal for many years I mean we challenge very hard on what we think is right for Arsenal but I think at the end of the day you have to do what's right and what your fans would want and you sort of get more respect in the system when you do that Mm. Final thing you know, th- this review is one thing. What about the reaction from football clubs and football club owners and the billionaires that have pumped all kinds of money into their clubs and are quite happy with the way things are? Um, there hasn't been there hasn't been much in the way of response. But uh, I just read before we started talking, the Aston Villa chief executive Christian Christian Perslow has talked about. Um, the danger of killing the golden goose and how calls for the Premier League to pay a tax on transfers, which would then supposedly trickle down through the pyramid, as we could see it could be beneficial for those clubs below the Premier League level. He doesn't seem to think this is a good idea because the Premier League already does that in terms of how they operate, parachute payments, all of those kinds of things. I mean, do you envisage pushback from owners and executives who might say, well, we're running a business. Why is this business being treated differently from, like you said earlier, a Sainsbury's, for example? You know, are Sainsbury's going to have this kind of legislation put in place? I know it's different. Sainsbury's doesn't have supporters or season ticket holders and all of that. I do understand that. But from their perspective, do you think that there might be some pushback and that might um, delay this or, or cause this to be watered down? There will certainly be pushback, but there will be lots of different views. I mean, I mean, the AST would still push back and say we'd like to see a bit more about owning shares. So everybody will contribute to a process. What's interesting, talking to Arsenal and hearing from Trust talking to other clubs, there are so many measures in this, Andrew, that I think clubs are looking saying, oh, some of that could be quite good. You know, if you're Arsenal, seeing better financial regulation, including control of those that are spending ridiculous, is a positive. Mm. You might take the view that giving it to independents gets it done properly. Um, Arsenal are saying, and I don't know where they'll go on this, but they are saying that we would bring leaving Islington or joining a new competition to the advisory board. They, they wouldn't give it the consent like at Liverpool. But my position to Josh Cronkie next time I meet him, well, if that's your commitment, why would you be worried about a regulator doing it? So I think, I think there's lots in the mix. I think there'll be some for, some against, 
some saying we like this bit. You might have seen Rick Parry from the Football League has decided to say it's a very good idea. I mean, you'll, you'll hear lots and lots of debate and lots and lots mm. of... Pers- but what I really hope is that in a few months' time, and we're probably looking at the Queen's speech in May, which is when the government announces a new session, that we would see a bill in that to bring forward a regulator, because I think that is the that is the structural change that could make so much positive difference. One very final thing um, I, I meant to ask you about this uh, previously was the announcement that from next year there's going to be a safe standing trialled in the Premier League, and I think Chelsea, Spurs, Manchester United, Manchester City are the clubs that are involved in that. Is this something that the Arsenal Supporters Trust would like to see at Arsenal? Uh, I know it's something you've spoken about them uh, or spoken to them about before. Uh, the commitments have been uh, wishy-washy, I think might be the right way of putting it. But is this something that you as a supporters group, alongside other supporters groups, um, have A, taken the temperature from from match-going fans about and B, you know, if the desire, if the, if the, um, you know, the want is there from fans, is this something that you're going to push for for Arsenal to to put in place? Yes, you must be a psychic because I was talking about this to Vinay, Arsenal's chief executive, just yesterday. The, the AST surveyed its members a few years ago now, and I think it was 92% in favour. We have been pushing for this and we were very active in the campaign with central government to get the rules changed. It's been a big frustration that Arsenal aren't in the first wave. I think to cut a long story short, the change from Ivan Gazidis to Vin Ivanechka helped a lot there. The club are now setting up a working group to look at this. The AST and other supporter groups will be on it. It's a little bit more difficult at Arsenal than new builds because they've got the existing stadium and the rake. But Vinay, I said, are you serious about this or is it PR? And he said, no, we are looking at it really seriously. I think there are different options of how you do it. One thing, I don't know how often you go in the lower tier, Andrew, but those seats are huge, aren't they? Mm. So you can slightly smaller seat if you're standing at it and that would address the fact that you lose a few gangways and aisles and keep your capacity the same but I would at the moment I feel cautiously optimistic that in about 18 months time we might be looking at some safe standing at Arsenal but certainly what I commit to do for all AST members and I think we might publicize it more widely is report back from this working group keep people informed in the debate but we actually think choice and introducing safe standing can only be a good thing for the Emirates. Yeah, we did a, a, a unscientific poll on Twitter via our Arsblog News Twitter account and asked people if they would be in favour of safe standing at the Emirates Stadium. 90%, well, 89% in favour, 11% against. So I think the vast majority of people would would like to see it. And you know, when you talk to those 11%, they actually, most of them acknowledge that they've misread the question and they think it means they're going to be made to stand. And when you explain that, it would would you support it for sections of the stadium, you can get that figure up to almost 100% because very, very few people would be against those who want to have the choice. And of course, those that want to sit and some need to sit and some prefer it, you're more likely to be in a sitting area if those that really want to stand are allowed into their own area. Exactly. And look, there are areas in the stadium which are standing already in a way, so make it official. All right, look, we'll leave it there as ever. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you.
Tim is on Twitter. He is at Tim Payton, at Tim Payton, and of course, part of the Arsenal Supporters Trust. You can find out more about them. You can join, even if you would like, at arsenaltrust.org. That is arsenaltrust.org. I do think it's going to be very interesting to see how this this all plays out. The review, the recommendations, how things are implemented, if they're implemented, how powerful it could be to change football. And clearly, there's a lot about football which needs to be changed, but there are also some very powerful, wealthy, vested interests who don't want much to change. And as we've seen in the past, those people tend to make life difficult for those trying to implement change or indeed trying to uh, effect any kind of, uh, in inverted commas, punishments or, or censure for things that football clubs might have done if you can afford the expensive lawyers and everything else. There usually seems to be a way around this. Nevertheless, there's some good stuff in there and uh, we'll wait and see how it all plays out. Um, I guess that pretty much does it for this particular episode. Uh, As always, thank you for being here. I will point you in the direction of our Patreon. Tomorrow we will have a Newcastle preview podcast. As always, we preview every Premier League game. Myself and Lewis Ambrose, you can join us for that. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash arsblog, which you can also sign up to for extra content. But if you also want to support everything that we're doing on the site, it goes a long, long way. Some changes made to the site. I'll detail those on the blog, perhaps over the weekend, uh, maybe even today. I'm not quite sure. It depends on when things get done. But uh, some changes which are designed to make life better for you readers, listeners, and all the rest of it. And if you do want to support what we do, our coverage and everything else, uh, you can sign up to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. Also, uh, I did mention this on the blog during the week. Christmas is coming. We do have uh, a directory of websites and services and trades and arts and crafts, people who are Arsenal fans. So if you're looking to do some online shopping. I realize this is coming out on Black Friday, that completely artificial thing which big, huge, billionaire-owned corporations use to get you to spend your money. But if you want to spend it with fellow Arsenal fans, visit ArsBiz. B-I-Z, arsbiz.arsblog.com. You can search by category. You can find all kinds of people in there who are fellow gooners, who would love your trade, who'd be happy to sell you bits and bobs before Christmas. I'm sure you can find something that you're looking for there. Uh, So try and keep it red and white if you can. It's arsbiz.arsblog.com. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra, looking back on whatever happens against Newcastle. Fingers crossed we get the right result. As ever, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for listening. It's hugely appreciated. Take it easy, and we will catch you on the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Honourable Sir Aubrey Muffin Top, MP for West Mansion Town. Thank you all. We're here today to talk about the uh, review to make footballs better. And frankly, we're surprised this whole thing has been as complicated 
as it is having studied the matter very deeply over the last number of months, we make the following recommendations. One, make them even rounder than they are right now. And two, bouncier. Fans love a good bounce from what we hear from the no fans that we've actually spoken to. So, in conclusion, roundier, bouncier, and perhaps leatherier? Like my balls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 